Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going to talk about chapter 7, which is Divine Foreknowledge and the Mormon Concept of Free Agency. If you recall last time, we went over the incompatibility of foreknowledge and free will in general, and we came up with an argument, which we called Argument B. And today we're going to kind of examine one of the premises there, or at least see if it holds up to scrutiny, and that is premise number 8. And well, I'll, let me just read what you say at the beginning of this chapter. It says, In this chapter I assess the arguments of those who reject the argument for incompatibility, meaning the incompatibility of foreknowledge and free will. So they reject that argument by rejecting the notion of free will upon which the argument is premised, which you said is contained in premise B8. And I wrote down that so we could remember what it is. B8 is if rock or a person acts freely when they sin tomorrow, then... That person also has it within their power to refrain from sinning tomorrow. If they were going to sin tomorrow, then they would have to be able to not sin tomorrow. And the assumption there is libertarian free will. And so that notion is what's being attacked here. Just read two other things, I guess, and then I'll have you expound anything before we go into the different types of free will. I wrote down, Mormons have usually referred to the notion of free will at issue as free agency. The term used in the Book of Mormon which is in Second Nephi chapter 2, to indicate the ability to choose either good or evil, both of which are genuinely open to an agent in the moment of free decision with respect to morally significant choices. And then you kind of give a background of this argument before the 70s and stuff like that. And obviously I don't know anything about that, so if you want to talk about what the arguments before this time were and why, we don't have to go into it too deeply but whatever you want to say about that. The uh, arguments were basically over whether or not you had to have power to do otherwise in order to have free will. Those who believed in what's known as libertarian free will argued that if you really couldn't do other than you actually did, given all the circumstances that obtained up to the moment of your choice, then you weren't free. The compatibilists arguing that free will is compatible with causal determinism gave what's known as a hypothetical or conditional analysis of the notion of to do otherwise. That is, you could do otherwise had you so chosen, even if you cannot so choose. Both agreed that the ability to do otherwise was essential to free will. And so what has changed since the discussion earlier in the 20th century, say the 50s through about the 90s, is that there's no longer consensus that the ability to do free will is necessary to have free will or morally accountable freedom. And so that's what's changed, is simply the ability to do otherwise consideration. But, and this is important in the argument for the incompatibility of foreknowledge and free will, what foreknowledge is incompatible with is there being two possible futures open if God knows that one of those futures is going to obtain. It's not incompatible with there being simply caused events, and if caused events are somehow consistent with free will, 
and there's only one option that's open, then that's not incompatible with foreknowledge. Foreknowledge only shows that alternative possibilities are not available in the future. It doesn't show that free will is incompatible with causal determinism. So that's the basis of the change. If you could, people, once we do this, will realize that they already know what it is just because of what we've been talking about. But since we're going to use this term a lot, can you kind of more narrowly define causal determinism or what we mean when we're talking about that? Causal determinism is the view that every event has a prior cause that explains why that event occurred. And there are no events that are not fully explained by whatever prior causal conditions exist in the world prior to that event. So it is the view that given causal determinism, the event is fully explained and the event could not be otherwise than it was given the nature of the causes before it occurred. All right, cool. That's a great intro to the subject. The first section is hypothetical free will, and this is kind of the notion of free will that has been held ever since Augustine, at least that's what you wrote in the book, and it's the majority position that has been held since Augustine. It's simply Augustine who most clearly defined this in Christian thought. I'm not sure there was actually a hypothetical analysis of free will before this in Greek thought, but there were those who assumed free will. It's really Augustine who begins the discussion of free will and earnest. There are discussions somewhat earlier in patristic writings. Irenaeus addresses the issue of free will. Oregon addresses the issue of free will. But they really don't give a definition, if you will, or clarify the notion of free will that they're working with like Augustine did. And besides, Augustine was far and away the most influential theologian probably in Christian history, and so he tended to define a lot of the terms in the debate. All right, I'm going to read a quote from him, and then we'll just kind of examine what he says and then what we can draw from this type of assertion. All right, Augustine says, We assert both that God knows all things before they come to pass, and that we do by our free will whatsoever we know and feel to be done by us only because we will it. But it does not follow that, though there is for God a certain order of causes, there must therefore be nothing depending on the free exercise of our own will. For our wills themselves are included in that order of causes which is certain to God and is embraced by his foreknowledge. For human wills are also causes of human actions, and he who foreknew all the causes of things would certainly, among those causes, not have been ignorant of our wills. And so what, what is he claiming here? Well, this can be read two ways. It can be read in a libertarian way or in a compatibilist way, and throughout Christian history it's been read in a way that it is compatible with causal determinism in the sense that God could move our wills with his irresistible grace to accept him, and we would still freely accept him. And so here's what Augustine doesn't say. He doesn't say that our wills are themselves caused. God knows the order of causes, and so he knows the causes that cause our will, and he knows what, as a result of those causes, our wills will cause. He simply says that the will itself is a cause, and he knows all the causes, therefore he knows our will. So there's this open question, at least in, in my reading of Augustine, whether he thought the will was caused or whether he thought the will was some kind of an uncaused cause, that it was itself a cause that God knew. But I think the best reading is that when he says it's included in that order of causes which is certain to God, he means that all things are caused and the will itself is caused and it causes things to occur. So when he knows our free will, he knows what we do by our free will and therefore he knows what the will itself causes. And the only thing that's necessary for the will to be free is that it is itself a cause of things. That's how I think the majority reading of Augustine is. Yeah, that's what I got from it. Probably because I was led along by your book afterwards, but when I first read it. 
Now I'm going to read what you have in the book as a syllogism to define hypothetical free will. Hypothetical free will says a person, S, is free at a time with respect to an action, A equals S. First off, what, is, what do you mean A equals S there? Yeah, what it means is a person is free with respect to an action, A, is defined as <laughs> S would do A at T on the condition that S desired to do A and B, nothing external to S prevents S from doing A. There's an easy shorthand for saying this. You can make a choice and nothing external to you prevents you from carrying out your choice. So yeah, that's what you kind of define the next part. So hypothetical free will allows the next three things. It says, one, that a person's desires, wants, or dispositions are themselves causes. And two, that desires, wants, and dispositions are themselves caused. And three, a person is free if there is a harmony between one's wants and one's actions. But this view does not require a choice among options that are genuinely open. So here's the key. Say I'm in a room, and I want to stay in the room. The fact that I can't get out of the room because the door is locked and there's only one way out, I'm still free to the extent that I desire to stay in the room. I'm only unfree if I desire to leave the room. Now, if I desire to leave the room, there's something external to my will that prevents me from carrying out my will, and that's the locked door. So this would suggest that a man is free as long as he's in a room and desires to stay in the room. Okay. Well, yeah, that's an interesting way to define free will. Then you start in this first of many examples of, we'll just call him Mr. Rock and the Mars bars and scientist situation. So first you just run through. There's a guy. His name is Mr. Rock. He's in a convenience store, and he sees some Mars bars, and he wants to steal these Mars bars. And so in the first scenario, before anyone is taking part, he feels this desire to steal them, and he acts on that desire, and nothing stops him from doing it, so it was free. And you're like, okay, well, that fits this definition. But then you go into a second scenario saying, well, actually, let's say there are some scientists, and somehow they implanted this special device into Mr. Rock's brain so that if he... Well, it's this one. It's implanted into his brain in the sense that if he wanted to refrain from stealing the Mars bar, they want him to steal a Mars bar and bring it to him. And they can monitor what it is he wants to do. So if he goes into the store and he willingly steals the Mars bar for them, they don't have to intervene. But if he gets there and he's thinking, I'm not going to steal that, that's wrong, they will intervene and overpower that through the brain mechanism that makes him want to steal the Mars bar and bring it to them. And so Rock goes into the store, he looks around and says, you know, I'm going to steal the Mars bar for those great guys. And so he steals the Mars bar, they don't have to intervene, they do nothing, he does exactly as he would have done if they hadn't even existed, and steals the Mars bar. And so the question is asked, in that condition, could he have done otherwise than steal the Mars bar? And the answer is no. If he chooses on his own to steal the Mars bar, he steals the Mars bar. And if he chooses not to steal the Mars bar, the scientists cause him to steal it. So no matter what, he steals the Mars bar. But we seem to have a situation where he's morally accountable and acts freely, even though he can't do other than he actually does, which is an argument against premise B8, suggesting that even if you don't have the ability to do otherwise, you could still be morally accountable and act freely. And therefore, we can adopt this hypothetical view of free will rather than having to go with libertarian free will, and thus we can suggest that the argument fails because premise B8 is false. What the hypothetical involving Rock shows is that hypothetical free will is not an adequate notion of free will, and here's why. 
causal determinism is not consistent with moral accountability or free actions for which we could be morally accountable. And the reason is, is that if we're morally accountable, if I say you ought to have done something different than what you did, I imply that you actually could have done other than you did. And so it makes no sense to make these kinds of ought statements unless we have power to do otherwise. The other problem is, is that the situation with Rock, where he is in the, it's actually a 7-Eleven, not just any convenience store, but he's in a 7-Eleven, and he decides to steal on his own, that's compatible with there being no causal determinism. But the notion that we have, you could replace the scientist acting on Rock's brain with all of the causal circumstances that occurred before Rock was born and up till the time that he acts. And the fact is, is that if those causal circumstances entail that he is going to steal, or rather he's going to take the Mars bar without paying for it, then those causal conditions are conditions he doesn't control. And because those causal conditions issue in his act without his being able to control it, he doesn't control his act in a way that is consistent with being morally free. And so the notion of hypothetical free will, where I would have done otherwise had I so chosen, is not an adequate notion of free will. And it's really this hypothetical or this conditional analysis of the ability to do otherwise that is at issue with hypothetical free will. Remember, it is a person would do otherwise had they so chosen, because everybody is still agreeing that the ability to do otherwise is essential to free will. But we can give counterexamples like the one with Rock, or we can give another one where we have a two-year-old. The two-year-old can will and can desire to void its bladder. However, the two-year-old can't desire not to will its bladder. However, the two-year-old can do as the two-year-old desires, and that's to void its bladder. And the ability that it can't refrain from avoiding its bladder, or that there are causal conditions that make it such that the two-year-old can't refrain from avoiding its bladder, would suggest that the two-year-old just isn't free or responsible in any sense if the two-year-old wets his diaper. But that notion and situation would be consistent with the definition of hypothetical free will. The two-year-old would have not voided his bladder had it desired not to do so. And so what examples like that show is that the conditional analysis of ability to do otherwise entailed in hypothetical free will is not an adequate definition of morally accountable free will. And it's based on arguments like this and others that we call intuition pumps, and we can come up with a lot of them that show that when we just outline them, we all look at that and say, yeah, he's not accountable for that. It's clear that he's not accountable for that because it's not really his act. His act is just issuing as the result of other things acting through him, even if his will is what these prior causes act through. His will can't do otherwise. And so to call it a will at all is actually an abuse of terms. To say that a person can will implies that the person can will either this or that or refrain from willing at all. And so if we're saying a person can will, then we're implying the ability to do otherwise. And so what the response to hypothetical free will is, is that there's no will involved at all. The will is merely a pass-through for the prior causal conditions that obtain in the world or other causes that act through the will when the will can't will otherwise than it does, and therefore it really isn't a will at all. And so that is the analysis as to why hypothetical free will has been largely abandoned in all discussions of free action. Hardly anybody gives a conditional analysis of free will anymore, based largely on the kinds of arguments we've assessed. All right, great. Now let's move on to libertarian free agency. I'll read from the book here. The sentence says, the second view of free will is that persons cannot be free in a morally significant sense unless they can do otherwise, given all the circumstances that obtain 
in the moment of free decision. And that's just a restatement of what we stated earlier from B8, but that's what libertarian free will is. You have to be able to do one or the other and not just one of them, even though hypothetically you could have done another. This notion of free will is supported by at least four considerations, and we're going to go over each of them. The first one says the notion that persons are morally responsible seems to require the ability to do otherwise. Yeah, and that's for the very reason we just discussed, and that is that the notion of ought seems to entail that we could do other than we did, because when we say a person ought to have done something different, we imply in the very judgment that they could have done what they ought to have done. If it wasn't within their power to do what they ought to have done, we don't hold them accountable for failing to do so. So the very notion of moral responsibility, that is the whole world of things that we ought to do, that we're obliged to do by whatever moral responsibility we have, would suggest that the ability to do otherwise is required to be morally accountable. And then second, it seems evident that sometimes my acts and decisions are up to me. The act is mine and not someone else's. So what we're talking about here is I have to have a certain kind of ownership over the acts so that we can attribute them to be my acts instead of somebody else's acts. So let's say that I'm six years old and you're 20 and you grab my arm and start hitting somebody else with my arm. Well, that's not my act because I don't control what's happening. And you can look outside, sometimes the limbs of the tree swish around in the breeze. But the tree isn't deciding to swish around. It's it's being moved by something external to it, the wind. Similarly, when we say that we're responsible for an act and it's our free act, it's because we own it and have taken control of the act in such a way that we can say that was your act and not somebody else's. We may want to blame other people and say that we're not accountable. And oftentimes when we try to avoid moral accountability, we try to slough it off and say, that's not a result of what I did. And if it's not a result of what we did, it seems to exonerate us. But the fact is, for us to be morally accountable, it has to be our act in an appropriate sense for us to act in a morally accountable way. Third one says, I sometimes deliberate, and it makes sense to deliberate. When I deliberate, I presuppose that what I deliberate about is within my direct control. I cannot deliberate about someone else's actions. I can only deliberate about my own act. So this means like you have two or more choices before you and you can stop and actually think which one you want. Right. And so if I'm deliberating, I'm deciding which of a number of courses I should bring about where I should make to become a reality. So I can make a choice to be kind to my wife or not be kind to my wife. If I'm incapable of being kind to my wife, we don't say I'm accountable when I'm unkind to her. We say that I'm just somebody who can't be kind, but I'm not accountable for it if people are under the influence of drugs and it influences them. They don't deliberate about their acts, they just do them. I don't deliberate about whether a limb of a tree should sway back and forth of the wind. I don't deliberate about somebody else's acts that I can't control. And I don't deliberate about acts which may be, in some sense, my act, but which I can't control. I don't deliberate about, most of the time, about whether I should breathe. I just do it automatically. But I could deliberate about it and stop breathing. When I deliberate about it and stop breathing, it's a free act. When I'm just doing it without deliberating about it, it's just an autonomic action that I take. And nobody's going to say, well, you're responsible for your breathing in a sense it's morally accountable. But I could be morally responsible for choosing not to breathe and passing out, especially if I do it while I'm driving. So it looks like, moreover, when we deliberate, we have to have open possibilities that we can consider and assess. Deliberation is usually weighing which of a course of action is best, this course or that course. 
which also, of course, presupposes alternatives that are open to me in, in the moment of decision. So th- the fact is, we all deliberate. And let me add that this is kind of a pragmatic argument for libertarian free will. Nobody could act under the presupposition or illusion that they're not free. If I actually believed I was not free, I wouldn't deliberate at all. I'd just say, well, what's going to occur happens regardless. If I believed that there were no open alternatives to me, I'm in a room, I know the door is locked, I don't deliberate about whether I will be able to get out unless I'm powerful enough to break down the door, which means I deliberate about what an option is. If I'm deliberating about should I leave, I deliberate about the means by which I'm going to bring it about that the door opens so I can leave. If I know that the door is locked and there's nothing in the universe that can open the door, I'm not going to deliberate about whether I'm going to leave and open the door in some way because it's not open to me or within my power to do so. So the fact that we engage in deliberation, we can't help but deliberate. We do it. As a pragmatic certainty, we do it. And what it means is that the notion that we don't have libertarian free will is pragmatically meaningless in our lives. We couldn't even imagine our lives without deliberation and this kind of assessment of the world as we live our lives. So pragmatically, the notion that we don't have libertarian free will just makes no sense at all. So it's a very strong argument for not only that we actually have free will because it's the only thing that makes any pragmatic sense, but the fact that we deliberate shows that by our very actions, we're presupposing the very free will that we experience when we deliberate. Okay, that's convincing to me. All right, the fourth one sort of was explained already, but I'll just read it anyway. It says, I sometimes make choices among alternatives that are genuinely open to me. The very notion of a choice presupposes that I can choose either this or that. I can perform an act of will or refrain from doing so. And the basic experience of choosing means freedom to choose or do something or not. You have here the freedom of contradictories, either to do or refrain from doing a certain action. It also means freedom to choose one thing or another, which you define as freedom of contraries, which is freedom to do either X or Y. So there's two different things there. There's freedom to do something and freedom to not do something. And the last thing, I have desires, but I can also choose among my desires to decide which desire to act on. So that's important in the sense that we always do as we desire, and we have these desires that we can control so we can't be free. But that's not quite true. Human beings are precisely the kinds of beings that can have desires and refrain from acting on their desires, and it's the fact that we can do so that makes us different from animals that aren't morally accountable. There was an argument that used to be given, you'll act with your strongest desire. The fact is we can choose what our strongest desire is. And so when we choose among alternatives, and we all have the experience of choosing. I have this alternative, I have that alternative, and I make choices between those alternatives. We have that actual experience. And so our immediate experience of the act of choosing is a very basic, you can't get behind it, you can't go any deeper, you can't analyze it any further. It's just a basic experience that we have. And the very basic experience itself suggests that it is its own proof that there are alternatives open to us because which choice we make is the one that makes the difference in the world and which future alternative will come to be. That's how we actually experience the world, is in making choices that are open to us that are alternatives. And so when we choose and we choose among alternatives, we experience ourselves immediately experiencing acting with libertarian free will, which again is a very strong suggestion, very strong argument from our immediate experience that in my view is not further analyzable. It's bedrock in terms of our analysis. You can't get behind it. We just have this power. And even trying to assume that we don't have this power is a choice. Failing to make a choice is a choice. 
And so there is no way to avoid, it's like the existentialist in the 60s said, in particular Jean-Paul Sartre, we couldn't possibly avoid making a choice because even the choice not to choose is a choice. We are stuck with free will. And it is, at least on his view, it is a burden. In my view, it's a huge opportunity because our free will allows us to be creative, imagine the future, and to act to bring it about by our choices and to choose which among the futures that are open to us, we choose to be our reality. And we can choose our values. We can choose our highest version of ourselves and either choose to make that a reality or shrink from it. And so this is actually a call to our full personality, our full personhood, our full humanity. And I'm a full believer in persons self-actualizing and realizing their full humanity. And that can only be done when a person, in my view, strongly affirms libertarian free will. There have been a number of studies done within the past two years about what happens when people believe that they don't have free will. That is, they believe that causal determinism rules. And it shows that they are less honest. It shows that they have more depression. It shows that they don't have the same kind of fortitude. People who believe in free will actually act out freely as they do. Now, it may be that some people actually aren't free. Just because we act with free will doesn't mean we're always free when we act. It may be that there genuinely are those who act under obsessive compulsive disorder, who really don't have a choice open to them because they are compelled by brain chemicals or whatever condition they're in to act the way that they do. So the notion that we act with libertarian free will doesn't mean we always act with libertarian free will, but it does mean that we have occasions when we experience ourselves acting with libertarian free will. And in my view, these are the strongest arguments for asserting that we actually have libertarian free will. Right, excellent. Next, we're going to go over a passage from the Book of Mormon and how it defines free agency, at least in the Mormon understanding. And this is from Second Nephi chapter 2, where Lehi is kind of giving his last sermon or last words of wisdom to his family. It says, It must needs be that there is an opposition, even the forbidden fruit in opposition to the tree of life, the one being sweet and the other bitter. Wherefore the Lord gave unto man that he should act for himself. Wherefore, man could not act for himself, save it should be that he was enticed by one or the other. Wherefore, they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. And because they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil, to act for themselves and not to be acted upon. And they are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or to choose captivity and death according to the power of the devil. And that's a pretty famous scripture in Mormon thought. And you say the scripture makes several salient or important relevant points to the Mormon understanding of free agency. I would like to go over each of them. You have four, I believe. So the first one you say, free agency requires that beings must be able to rationally estimate the relative merits of possible courses of action in choosing. Free agents are minimally the sorts of beings that can appreciate the consequences and moral significance of their actions. So you have to be at least aware morally. And that's why, like you said, we don't get mad at a one-year-old kid that wets their pants, whereas if an adult does it and they have control over their actions, then be like, whoa, why did you do that? The bottom line is that this first condition, that we can rationally estimate the relative moral value or merits of our action, is really a restatement of the McNaughton test for legal accountability. What the McNaughton test says is if we can't rationally appreciate the consequences of our actions, and appreciate the difference between right and wrong in what we do, then we're essentially insane and we can 
be excused for our actions because we really don't have full mental faculties to make decisions. And in this scripture, what suggests to me that it seems first that God is giving a choice to Adam and Eve. In other words, the scriptures say that God gave Adam and Eve their agency in the Garden of Eden. I think what that means is he gave them a choice between one or the other. He gave them libertarian free will by giving them alternatives to choose between. And this is how God gives them their agency. They can choose one or the other. Now, here's the kicker. What the scripture says is if they remain in a state of innocence, not knowing the difference between good or evil, they can't really be accountable for what they're doing. They remain innocent like little kids. And in fact, that's what the Book of Mormon actually says. They remain in a state of innocence like little children. And so there's this notion that children are not really morally accountable for what they do until either a certain age or or a certain mental capacity is developed, precisely because we have to be able to rationally estimate the relative merits of our possible courses of action and appreciate the consequences that our actions will have. And children just don't have the cognitive capacity to do that. And people who are insane don't have the capacity to do that. So this is a condition of both free will and moral accountability. Great. All right. And the second one that we can draw from the scripture we read is, persons are not free if they are merely acted upon and do not act for themselves. Yeah, this seems to be explicit in the scripture. And I've never been able to read this without believing that it assumes that if you're acted upon by causes outside of your control, (laughs) you're merely acted upon, then you're not free. We have to be able to act for ourselves, which means that we're not acting out of forces that merely act upon us. And so I've never been able to read this particular kind of statement without reading in it a notion that it is separating. Now, it doesn't mention causal determinism. It doesn't mention even causes. But being acted upon is another description of a cause. So something acts upon me, there's something that has some kind of influence and causes to be in a certain way. And acting for ourselves, if I'm acting for myself, it seems to be that I am, in some sense, an uncaused cause. I act out of my own self, my own personality, my own character, and not out of the prior causal circumstances that arise. And so this condition seems to me to reject causal determinism as being consistent with moral accountability and free agency. And uh, that's why I, I say I believe that this Mormon scripture suggests that we have libertarian free will. Right, and the third one is free will, if it's genuine, requires a choice among alternatives that are enticing or live options and genuinely open to the agent in the moment of free decision. It's not a part of the quote, but if you follow through in Second Nephi 2, it talks about the option of taking the fruit and the option of not taking the fruit. We're both enticing, and Eve was enticed by the opportunity to grow and to learn about both good and evil, to know both bitter and sweet, both misery and flourishing in life, and being able to do good because we know sin. And so what was enticing to Eve is that she could act in such a way that she would increase her capacities. That's what was enticing. But when we make decisions, I mean, if I have the decision between either answering a question I don't want to answer or having somebody hit me over the head with a gun, Neither of those options is really enticing to me. And if somebody says, look, I'm going to kill your child unless you give up all of the nuclear codes, neither of those. I mean, if somebody gave up the nuclear codes, we'd say that they were being coerced by the threats that were being made against them. And we probably wouldn't hold that person responsible or as fully responsible. Now, maybe we would say, well, you should have made the calculus between a million lives and your own child. That's a tough one to make. 
But let's say you've got to choose between this bomb going to San Francisco or this bomb going to New York, and you get to choose, does it go left or right? Well, those are not live options. Either one is unacceptable. And if you don't have those kinds of options that are open to you, all you do is flip a coin because they're, you know, they're both so bad that you can't choose either one of them. And so in order for us to make decisions for which we're accountable, we have to be able to assess the relative value and what it returns to us. In ethics theory, you would say this is kind of a consequentialist requirement. I have to be able to assess the results in terms of weighing which brings me the greatest good in terms of results. And so it's a consequentialist ethical theory that seems to be presupposed by that particular prong or that particular recognition in the scripture. All right, great. And then the last one here is that a person cannot be free if that person is merely acted upon. Human free will arises when persons are free to act for themselves independently to a degree of all other events which might causally contribute to the person's act, including God's influence. Mormon in, or Mormons reject the notion that free will is possible if causal determinism is true. So this is kind of the flip side of what we noticed before. In saying that we have to be able to act for ourselves, we're rejecting the notion that if we're merely acted upon and we're just kind of a passive conduit for external causes to pass through us, resulting in whatever decision we make, then we're not really free in any significant sense and we're not morally accountable for what we do. So let's say that I have a certain um, brain condition and given my prior history, that brain condition means it will result in a rage that I can't control and the rage is going to lead me to slaughter a number of people. If I can demonstrate legally that the rage truly was the result of a brain condition, say a tumor in my head, and that causes the rage, I wouldn't be held legally accountable for slaughtering all those people. They'd take and stick me away for a long time because everybody would be afraid to be around me. But nobody would hold me morally accountable for that precisely because I'm merely being acted upon by the prior causal conditions that result in my action. So legally, and even in terms of moral theory, we're all exonerated by those kinds of recognitions. And I think that's the kind of recognition being made also in the Book of Mormon and Second Nephi 2. All right, great. And then we lay them out in kind of like a logical form here. So we define these conditions set forth in these scriptures as conditions of free agency, which you abbreviate to CFA. There are three conditions of free agency. The first condition is a person is free in a morally significant sense with respect to an action only if that person has moral beliefs about whether the action is good or evil and appreciates the consequences of the person, their, their own acts. And we kind of talked about that a bit already. Yeah, we've already discussed that and why that is so. So a condition of free will is that we have beliefs about whether an action is good or evil and appreciate the consequences of our acts to bring about good or evil. Right. The second one is that a person acts freely in a morally significant sense only if the person's acts are caused by the person themselves and not merely the result of causes acting upon the person. And this is back to that condition it's like a version of the control over the causes. Right, so the control over the causes. We have to control the causes that issue in our action, or we're not morally accountable for our acts. Okay, and then the last one is, a person is morally free with respect to an action of willing a certain action only if the person could have willed otherwise. So what this is suggesting, look at the level at which it is suggesting we have power to act otherwise. Is suggesting that it's at the level of the will. I can will this or I can will that. I can refrain from willing. 
if I can't refrain from willing, I must will, and I don't really have a will at all. We wouldn't even call it a will. We'd call it a compulsion. And so I'm morally free only when at the level of my will, I can will either this or that. And I'll just give this as a general example to keep in mind as we discuss later concepts. Let's say that I'm paralyzed. I will to move my right arm, but I can't because I'm paralyzed. I can still will to move it. And I can refrain from willing to move it, but I can't carry out my will. And it's at the level of the will that we must be free to be responsible in a morally significant sense. The fact that I can't morally carry out everything that I will to do doesn't mean that I'm not morally accountable. And this is kind of the recognition of Kant, who recognized that it is the will itself, the ability of the the will to creatively bring about the world and to will this or that, that is the crowning glory of humankind. And so this is the sterling quality that we have, the ability to will. The amazing thing is nobody can really pinpoint an act of willing. Nobody can really say this is what an act of will looks like, but we subjectively feel ourselves willing in this sense. Very true. All right, and then the next point in this section is kind of the difference between a will versus like a passion or a desire that comes upon you that you don't necessarily want or not want, but it's just something that happens to you. And Mormonism would call this probably the natural man. Right. It's the difference between acting and being acted upon. Our passions and desires act upon us because our physical bodies are the way they are. I have a desire to eat because I have hunger. I have a desire to mate because I have a desire for sexual intimacy. I have a desire to see beauty because of the changes that it makes in my brain, those kind of things. And so the desires that we have act upon us. We don't control what our desires are. And we can say that desires are perfectly passive. That is, we don't create them. They occur to us because of who and what we are. And so desires are what they are. The desires are just what is presented to us by the external world and being an embodied being in the world. On the other hand, the will is perfectly active. The will, by its very nature, has to be something that acts of its own or it doesn't even exist at all. The will acts to bring to act to will this, to will that, to refrain from willing, or to will that it occur. And we can't even conceive of the notion of a will unless it is the will acting per se in itself. That sums that up pretty well. And then we just kind of conclude this section with just understanding that the Mormon response to Augustine and Edwards, who I don't know, maybe I missed who Edwards is. I quote Jonathan Edwards earlier in the chapter. Jonathan Edwards was really the first great American theologian. He wrote in the early American colonies. He was in the Puritan Calvinist tradition, one of the great Calvinist theologians and follows in the Augustinian tradition. And he defined free will largely the same way Augustine did, and that is the ability to act without external compulsion. And so if you will something and nothing external to you stops you from willing what you do, even if you can't will otherwise. And the reason they adopt that view is they both have a notion of irresistible grace. Let's lay it out. Because we are burdened with original sin, and because of the nature that we have, which we can't overcome on our own, we are stuck unless God acts upon our will to move our will to accept his grace, called irresistible grace. And so they have to adopt a notion of free will because they want to say that some sense this is an act that we do, but also an act that we don't do. And what they're saying is when God acts irresistibly upon us, he's still not acting in a way that's inconsistent with our free will. But I don't think many people 
actually accept that. I think they recognize that if given my nature, I can't possibly accept God's grace. And if it is God himself who's moving my will to accept the grace, it's not really my will that's accepting it at all. It's God's will. And there is no will that I have that's even involved. God is acting through me to accept his own grace. And so that's in part why they adopt the notion of free will that they do, because it is consistent with their Calvinist. And and on that view, God also causes everything to occur that occurs in one way or another. And they, they have very complicated ways of explaining how it is that God brings about everything that occurs because it's a result of his will that it be that way. But the bottom line is, is that it's God bringing about everything causally. But if that's the case, then causal determinism is true. And so they have to have a notion of free will and accountability that are consistent with causal determinism. The problem is, is when we scrutinize what they give us as a notion of free will, the notion seems to collapse and is not an adequate view of free will at all. And so that's why I reject their view of free will. Right. That's why you say uh, it fails to provide a concept of a morally significant free will. Also, you say in the end here that it's a big problem for foreknowledge as well. It is a big problem for foreknowledge because it, it assumes and requires the ability to do otherwise. And if we have to be able to do other than we do, then there have to be alternative open futures. And alternative open futures are not logically consistent with the notion in the past. God knew how things were going to be in the future. There's only one single future that's consistent with what God knew the future would be, and that's the future that he knew would be. And so the libertarian free agency is not consistent with God's foreknowledge. The hypothetical free agency is, but it's not an adequate notion of free will, that I, and I suggest that we reject it. So we can't, at least to this point, reject premise B8 based upon the notion of hypothetical free will. And there are very strong reasons, it seems to me, for adopting the view that we have some form of libertarian free will. And there are a number of different ways that we can talk about libertarian free will in relation to the causal order. They're what are called event-causal libertarians. And event-causal libertarians believe that the acting of the will is simply itself an event, and this event brings about or is identical with the willing. There are also what are called agent-causalist libertarians, where they believe that the agent or the person as a whole, the character and the history and everything else that makes up a person, that person, given all of the prior circumstances that exist, is still not fully determined or caused to do what that person will choose to do. In some sense, that person must be an uncaused cause, and it is the power of causal agency. And, and causal agency is a power that we just happen to have to act in a novel way that breaks with all prior causal conditions in the world. And so we have a power that many in the tradition have reserved for God alone. That is the power to create without prior conditions dictating what our choice to create will be. And I'm going to suggest that we stop here. There's a lot to discuss in these other sections that we're going to talk about. Quite enough meat there. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.